Chapter 15 of The Social History of Smoking. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Jason Mayoff. The Social History of Smoking by G. L. Apperson, ISO. Chapter 15. Tobacconist Signs. I would enjoin every shop to make use of a sign which bears some affinity to the wares in which it deals. Addison, Spectator, April 2, 1711. Shop signs were one of the most conspicuous features of the streets of old London. In days when the numbering of houses was unknown, the use of signs was indispensable for identification, and greatly must they have contributed to the quaint and picturesque appearance of the streets. Some projected far over the narrow roadway, competition to attract attention, and custom is no modern novelty, some were fastened to posts or pillars in front of the houses. By the time of Charles II, the overhanging signs had become a nuisance and a danger, and in the seventh year of that king's reign, an act was passed providing that no sign should hang across the street, but that all should be fixed to the balconies or fronts or sides of houses. This act was not strictly obeyed, and a large number of signs were hung over the doors while many others were affixed to the fronts of the houses. Eventually, in the second half of the 18th century, signs gradually disappeared and the streets were numbered. There were occasional survivals which are to be found to this day, such as the barber's pole, accompanied sometimes by the brass basin of the barber surgeon, the glorified canister of a grocer, or the golden leg of a hosier. And inn signs have never failed us, but by the close of the 18th century, most of the old trade signs, which flaunted themselves in the streets, had disappeared. The sellers of tobacco naturally hung out their signs like other tradesfolk. Signs in their early days were no doubt chosen to intimate the trades of those who used them, and in the easy-going old-fashioned days, when it was considered the right and natural thing for a son to be brought up to his father's trade and to succeed him therein, they long remained appropriate and intelligible. Later, as we shall see, they became meaningless in many cases. But in the days when tobacco smoking first came into vogue, the signs chosen naturally had some reference to the trade they indicated, and one of the earliest used was the sign of the black boy, in allusion to the association of the Negro with tobacco cultivation. The black boy existed as a shop sign before tobacco's triumph, for Henry Machen, in his diary, so early as December 30th, 1562, mentions a goldsmith dwelling at the scene of the Blake boy in the cheap. But the early sellers of tobacco soon fastened on this appropriate sign. The earliest reference to such use may be found in Ben Jonson's Bartholomew Fair, 1614, where, in the first scene, Humphrey Wasp says... I thought he would have run mad o' the black boy in Bucklesbury that takes the scurvy, rogy tobacco there. Later, the black boy, like other once significant signs, became meaningless and was used in connection with various trades. Early in the 18th century, a bookseller at the sign of the black boy on London Bridge was advertising Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. Another bookseller traded at the black boy in Paternoster Row in 1712. Linen drapers, hatters, pawnbrokers, and other tradesmen all used the same sign at various dates in the 18th century. But side by side with this indiscriminate and unnecessary use of the sign, there existed a continuous association of the black boy with the tobacco trade. 
A tobacconist named Millward lived at the Black Boy in Red Cross Street, Barbican, in 1742. And many old tobacco papers show a black boy, or sometimes two, smoking. Mr. Holden McMichael, in his papers on the London Signs, says, Mrs. Skinner, of the old established tobacconists opposite the law courts in the Strand, possessed, about the year 1890, two signs of the black boy, appertaining, no doubt, to the old house of Messrs. Skinner's on Holborn Hill, of the front of which there is an illustration in the Archer Collection in the print department of the British Museum, where the black boy and tobacco rolls are depicted outside the premises. The black boy, indeed, continued in use by tobacconists until the 19th century was well advanced. A tobacconist had a shop upon Wapping Wall in 1667 at the sign of the black boy and pelican. Other significant early tobacconist signs were Sir Walter Raleigh, the Virginian, and the tobacco roll. Sir Walter, as the reputed introducer of tobacco, was naturally chosen as a sign, and his portrait adorns several shop bills in the bank's collection. The American Indians, represented under the figure of the Virginian, and the Negroes were hopelessly confused by the early tobacconists, with results which were sometimes surprising from an ethnological point of view. As the first tobacco imported into this country came from Virginia, a supposed Virginian was naturally adopted as a tobacco seller's sign at an early date. An Indian, or a Negro, or figure which was a combination of both, was commonly represented wearing a kilt or a girdle of tobacco leaves, a feathered headdress, and smoking a pipe. A tobacco paper, dating from about the time of Queen Anne, bears rudely engraved the figure of a negro smoking and holding a roll of tobacco in his hand. Above his head is a crown. Behind are two ships in full sail, with the sun just appearing from the right-hand corner above. The foreground shows four little black boys planting and packing tobacco, and below them is the name of the ingenious tradesman John Winkley, tobacconist near Ye Bridge in the borough Southwark. Sixty years or so ago, a wooden figure representing a negro with a gilt loincloth and band with feathered head, and sometimes with a tobacco roll, was still a frequent ornament of tobacconist shops. The tobacco roll, either alone or in various combinations, was one of the commonest of early tobacconist signs, and was in constant use for a couple of centuries. It may still be occasionally seen at the present time in the form of the twist with alternate brown or black and yellow coils, which up to quite a recent date was a tolerably frequent adornment of tobacconist shops, but is now rare. This roll represented what was called spun or twist tobacco. Decker, in James I's time, speaks of roll tobacco. The youngster who mimics the stage gallants in Johnson's Cynthia's Revels, as described in Chapter 2, Ante, page 31, says that he has three sorts of tobacco in his pocket, which probably means that it was customary to mix, for smoking purposes, tobacco of the three usual kinds, roll, or pudding, leaf, and cane. One would have thought that a representation of the tobacco plant itself would have been a more natural and comprehensive sign than one particular preparation of the herb, yet representations of the plant were rare, while those of the compressed tobacco known as pudding or roll in the form of a tobacco roll, as described above, were very frequently used as signs. From the examples given in Burns' descriptive catalogue of London tokens of the 17th century, it is clear that the tobacco roll was a warm favourite. Three tobacco rolls was also used as a sign. 
In 1732, there was a tobacco roll in Finch Lane on the north side of Cornhill over against the Swan and Rummer Tavern. In 1766, Mrs. Flight, tobacconist, carried on her business at the tobacco roll, next door but one to St. Christopher's Church, Threadneedle Street. The shop bill of Richard Lee, who sold tobacco about 1730 at Ye Golden Tobacco Roll in Panton Street near Leicester Fields, is an elaborate production. Hogarth, in the earlier periods of his career as an engraver, engraved many shop bills, and this particular bill is usually attributed to him, though the attribution has been disputed. There is a copy of the bill in the British Museum, and in the catalogue of the prints and drawings in the National Collection, Mr. Stevens thus describes it, it is an oblong enclosing an oval, the spandrels being occupied by leaves of the tobacco plant tied in bundles. The above title, Richard Lee at Ye Golden Tobacco Roll in Panton Street near Leicester Fields, is on a frame which encloses the oval. Within the latter, the design represents the interior of a room, with ten gentlemen gathered near a round table, on which is a bowl of punch. Several of the gentlemen are smoking tobacco in long pipes. One of them stands up on our right and vomits. Another, who is intoxicated, lies on the floor by the side of a chair. A fire of wood burns in the grate. On the wall hangs two pictures. Three men's hats hang on pegs on the wall. Altogether, this is an interesting and suggestive design, but hardly in the taste likely to commend itself to present-day tradesmen. A roll of tobacco, it may be noted, was a common form of payment to the fleet parsons for their scoundrelly services. Pennant, writing in 1791, describes how these men hung out their frequent signs of a male and female hand conjoined, with the legend written below, Marriages Performed Within. Before his shop walked the parson, a squalid, profligate figure, clad in a tattered plaid nightgown, with a fiery face, and ready to couple you for a dram of gin or a roll of tobacco. Combinations of the roll in tobacconist signs occur occasionally. In 1660 there was a tobacco roll and sugar loaf at Gray's Inn Gate, Holborn. In 1659, James Barnes issued a farthing token from the sugar loaf and three tobacco rolls in the Poultry, London. The sugar loaf was the principal grocer's sign, and so when it is found in combination with the tobacco roll at this time, it may reasonably assume that the proprietor of the business was a grocer who was also a tobacconist. Before the end of the 17th century, however, the signs were ceasing to have any necessary association with the trade carried on under them, and tobacconists are found with shop signs which had no reference in any way to tobacco. For instance, to take a few examples from the late Mr. Hilton Price's lists of signs of old London from Cheapside and adjacent streets in 1695, John Arundel, tobacconist, was at the White Horse. Wood Street, in the same year, J. Mumford, tobacconist, was at the Falcon, Lawrence Lane. In 1699, Mr. Brutton, tobacconist, was to be found at the Three Crowns under the Royal Exchange. In 1702, Richard Bronus, tobacconist, was at the Horseshoe, Bread Street. And in 1766, Mr. Hoppy, of the oil jar, Old Change, Wattling Street End, advertised that he sold a newly invented phosphorus powder for lighting pipes quickly in about a half a minute. Ask for a bottle of thunder powder. Again, in Fleet Street, Mr. Townsend, tobacconist, traded in 1672 at the Three Golden Balls, near St. Dunstan's Church while at the end of Fetter Lane a few years later, John Newland, tobacconist, was to be found at the King's Head. 
Addison, in the 28th Spectator, April 2, 1711, took note of the severance which had taken place between sign and trader, and of the absurdity that the sign no longer had any significance. After satirizing, first, the monstrous conjunctions in signs of dog and gridiron, cat and fiddle, and so forth, and next the absurd custom by which young tradesmen, at their first starting in business, added their own signs to those of the masters, under whom they had served their apprenticeship, the essayist goes on to say, In the third place, I would enjoin every shop to make use of a sign which bears some affinity to the wares in which it deals. What can be more inconsistent than to see a tailor at the lion? A cook should not live at the boot, nor a shoemaker at the roasted pig. And yet, for want of this regulation, I have seen a goat set up before the door of a perfumer, and the French king's head at a sword-cutler's. Notwithstanding the few examples given above, tobacconists, more than most tradesmen, seem to have continued to use signs that had at least some relevance to their trade. Abel Drugger was a tobacco man, i.e., a tobacco seller, in Ben Jonson's play of The Alchemist, 1610, so that it is not very surprising to find the name used occasionally as a tobacconist sign. Toward the end of the 18th century, one Peter Coburn traded as a tobacconist at the sign of the Abel Drugger in Fenchurch Street and informed the public on the advertising papers in which he wrapped up his tobacco for customers that he had formerly been shopman at the Sir Roger de Coverley, a notice which has preserved the name of another tobacconist sign borrowed from literature. 17th century London signs were the three tobacco pipes, two tobacco pipes crossed and five tobacco pipes, at Edinburgh in the 18th century there were tobacconists who used two pipes crossed, a roll of tobacco and two leaves over two crossed pipes, and a roll of tobacco and three leaves. The older tobacconists were wont to assert, says Larwood, that the man in the moon could enjoy his pipe, hence the man in the moon is represented on some of the tobacconist papers in the bank's collection, puffing like a steam engine, and underneath the words, Who'll smoke with ye man in ye moon? The Dutch, as everyone knows, are great smokers, so a Dutchman has been a common figure on tobacconist signs. In the 18th century, a common device was three figures representing a Dutchman, a Scotchman, and a sailor, explained by the accompanying rhyme. We three are engaged in one cause. I snuffs, I smokes, and I chaws. Larwood says that a tobacconist in the Kingsland Road had the three men on his sign, but with a different legend. This Indian weed is good indeed. Puff on, keep up the joke, tis the best, twill stand the test, either to chew or smoke. The bill bearing this sign is in Bank's collection, 1750. Another in the same collection, with a similar meaning but of more elaborate design, shows the three men, the central figure having his hands in his pockets, and in his mouth a pipe from which smoke is rolling. The man on the left advances towards this central figure, holding out a pipe, above which is the legend, de rap. Above the middle man is No, this been better. The third man on his right holds out, also towards the central figure, a tobacco box, above which is the legend Will you have a quid? A frequent sign device among dealers in snuff was the crown and rasp. The oldest method of taking snuffs at Larwood in the history of signboards was to scrape it with a rasp from the dry root of the tobacco plant. The powder was then placed on the back of the hand and so snuffed up. Hence the name of rapé, rasped for a kind of snuff, and the common tobacconist sign of la carotte d'or, the golden root in France, rapé became in English rapé. 
familiar in snuff-taking days as the name for a coarse kind of snuff made from the darker and ranker tobacco leaves. The list of prices and names given by Wimble, a snuff seller, about 1740, and printed in Fairholt's History of Tobacco, contains 18 different kinds of rapee, English, best English, fine English, high-flavored coarse, low, scented, composite, etc., the rasps for obtaining this rapé, continues Larwood, were carried in the waistcoat pocket and soon became articles of luxury, being carved in ivory and variously enriched. Some of them, in ivory and inlaid wood, may be seen at the Hotel Cluny in Paris, and an engraving of such an object occurs in Archaeologia, Volume 13. One of the first snuff boxes was the so-called rapé, or grivoise box, at the back of which was a little space for a piece of the root, whilst a small iron rasp was contained in the middle. When a pinch was wanted, the root was drawn a few times over the iron rasp, and so the snuff was produced and could be offered to a friend with much more grace than under the above-mentioned process with the pocket grater. The tobacconist sign that for very many years was in most general use was the figure of a highlander, which may still perhaps be found in one or two places, but which was not at all an unusual sight in the streets of London and other towns some forty or fifty years ago. Most men of middle age can remember when the snuff-taking Highlander was the usual ornament to the entrance of a tobacconist's shop, but all have disappeared from London streets save two, I say two on the authority of Mr. E. V. Lucas, who gives it in his Wanderer in London as the number of the survivors, but only one is known to me. This is the famous old wooden Highlander, which stood for more than a hundred years on guard at a tobacconist's shop in Tottenham Court Road. About the end of 1906 it was announced that the shop was to be demolished, and that the time-worn figure was for sale. The announcement created no small stir, and it was said that the offers for the Highlander ran up to a surprising figure. He was bought, ultimately, by a neighboring furnishing firm, and now stands on duty not far from his ancient post, though no passerby can help feeling the incongruity between the time-honored emblem of the snuff-taker and his present surroundings of linoleum and sitch. Where Mr. Lucas's second survivor may be is unknown to me. Not so many years ago, a wooden Highlander, as a tobacconist sign, was a conspicuous figure in Knightsbridge, and there was another in the Westminster Bridge Road. But Tempus Edix Rerum has consumed them with all their brethren. In a few provincial towns, a wooden Highlander may still be found at the door of tobacco shops, but they are probably destined to early disappearance. In 1907, one still stood guard, a tall figure in full costume, outside a tobacconist shop in Cheltenham, and may still be there. There is a Highlander of oak in the costume of the Black Watch still standing, I believe, in the doorway of a tobacco shop at St. Helier's, Jersey. It is traditionally said to have been originally the figurehead of a war vessel which was wrecked on the Alderney coast. Another survivor may be seen at the door of a shop belonging to Messrs. Churchman, tobacco manufacturers, in Westgate Street, Ipswich. A correspondent of Notes and Queries describes it as a very fine specimen in excellent condition, and adds, Mr. W. Churchman informs me that it belonged to his grandfather, who established the business in Ipswich in 1790, and he believed it was quite a hundred year old at the time. One of the earliest known examples of these Highlanders as tobacconist signs is that which was placed at the door of a shop in Coventry Street, which was opened in 1720, under the sign, The Highlander Thistle and Crown. This is said to have been a favorite place of resort of the Jacobites. 
In his Nicotine and its Rariora, Mr. A. M. Broadley gives the card, dated 1765, of William Kebb at Ye Highlander Ye Corner of Pall Mall, facing St. James Haymarket, and says that the Highlander was a favourite tobacconist sign for two hundred years. I have been unable, however, to find evidence of such a prolonged period of favour. I know of no certain seventeenth-century reference to the Highlander as a tobacconist sign. The figure was usually made with a snuff mull in his hand, the Highlander being always credited with a great love and a great capacity for snuff-taking. But one curious example was furnished, not only with a mull, but with a bat-like implement of unknown use. Mr. Arthur Denman, FSA, writing in Notes and Queries, April 17, 1909, said, I have a very neat little genuine specimen of the old tobacconist sign of a 42nd Highlander with his mull. It is three feet six inches high, and it differs from those usually met with in that under the left arm is an implement almost exactly like a cricket bat. This bat has a gilt knob to the handle, and on the shoulder of it are three chevrons in gold, without doubt a sergeant's stripes. On the exposed side of the bat is what would appear to represent a loose strip of wood. This strip is nearly one-third of the width of the instrument, and extends up the middle about two-fifths of the length of the body of it. I can only guess that the bat was, at some time, primarily an emblem of a sergeant's office, and secondarily used for the infliction of chastisement on clumsy or disorderly recruits, and perhaps it was equivalent to the gel of German armies, which sergeants drove lacking warriors into the fray. But is there any record of such an accoutrement as being that of a sergeant in the British army, and what was the purpose of the loose strip? unless it was to cause the blow administered to resound as much as to hurt as does the wand of harlequin in a booth these questions received no answers from the learned correspondence of the most useful and omniscient of weekly papers personally i much doubt mr denman's suggested explanations of his highlander's curious implement there is no evidence that a sergeant in the british army ever carried a cricket bat-like implement either as a sign of office or to be used for disciplinary or punitive purposes like the canes of the german sergeants of long ago it would seem to be more likely that this particular figure was of unusual perhaps unique make and had some special local or individual significance wherever or for whom it was first made and used which has now been forgotten after the suppression of the jacobite uprising in seventeen forty five the english government made war on scottish nationality and among other measures the wearing of the highland dress was forbidden by parliament on this occasion the following paragraph appeared in the newspapers of the time we hear that the dapper wooden highlanders who guard so heroically the doors of snuff shops intend to petition the legislature in order that they may be excused from complying with the act of parliament with regard to their change of dress alleging that they have ever been faithful subjects to his majesty having constantly supplied his guards with a pinch out of their mauls when they marched by them and so far from engaging in any rebellion that they have never entertained a rebellious thought whence they humbly hope that they shall not be put to the expense of buying new clothes this is not a very humorous production but at least it bears witness to the common occurrence in seventeen forty six of the highlanders figure at the shops of snuff and tobacco sellers the Highlander, as he existed within living memory at many shop doors, and as he still exists at a few, was and is the survivor of many similar wooden figures as trade signs. The wooden figure of a negro or Indian with a gilt loincloth and feathered head has already been mentioned as an old tobacconist sign. 
In early Georgian days, a tobacconist named John Bowden, who dealt in all kinds of snuff, and also in aloe, pigtail, and wild tobacco, with all sorts of perfumer's goods, wholesale and retail, traded at the sign of the Highlander and Black Boy in Threadneedle Street, London. At York, in this present year, 1914, I came upon a brightly painted wooden figure of Napoleon in full uniform and snuff-box in hand, standing at the door of a small tobacco shop. Another class of sign or emblem was represented by the wooden midshipman, which many of us have seen in Leadenhall Street, and which Dickens made famous in Dombey and Son. Sometimes the wooden figure of a sailor stood outside public houses with such signs as the jolly sailor, and a black doll was long a familiar token of the loathly shop kept by the tradesmen mysteriously known as marine store dealers. Images of this kind sometimes stood at the door, or in many cases were placed on brackets or swung from the lintels. Sir Walter Scott said that in London a Scotchman would walk half a mile farther to purchase his ounce of snuff where the sign of the Highlander announced a North Britain. Dickens's little figure, which adorned old Saul Gills's shop, quote, thrust itself out above the pavement, right leg foremost, end quote, with shoe buckles and flapped waistcoat very much unlike the real thing, and, quote, bore at its right eye the most offensively disproportionate piece of machinery, end quote. But this was only one of many, quote, little timber midshipmen in obsolete naval uniforms eternally employed outside the shop doors of nautical instrument makers in taking observations of the hackney coaches, end quote. All have disappeared, together with the black dolls of the rag shops and many other old-time figures. A stray highlander or two, or other figure, may survive here and there, but with very few exceptions indeed, the once abundant tobacconist signs have disappeared from our streets as completely as the emblems and tokens of other trades. End of chapter 15 End of The Social History of Smoking by George L. Apperson